Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Uh, for those who are new uh, to Windsor Road or you've just joined us, uh, whether in person or online, uh, we're in the middle of our sermon series based on the gospel uh, according to Luke. And this morning we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. The title of my message this morning is More Like Jesus and Less Like the Pharisees. More Like Jesus and Less Like the Pharisees. In early 1992, tenants let three apartments in a strictly Jewish uh, Orthodox neighborhood in Tel Aviv, Israel, burn to the ground while they asked a rabbi whether a telephone call to the fire department on the Sabbath was lawful. For those unfamiliar with what a Sabbath is, it is the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments that God handed down to Moses at Mount Sinai after their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And this is what God said in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 10. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall labor and do all your work. On it you shall not do any work, sorry. On the face of it, it looks pretty straightforward. The word Sabbath uh, Sabbath simply means stop, cease, desist, or stop working, in other words. But what is work? And that's the sticking point. In Tel Aviv, observant Jews were forbidden to use their phones on the Sabbath because doing so would break an electrical current, which is considered a form of work. However, in the case of an emergency, they're allowed to break the Sabbath law. So in the half hour it took for the rabbi to decide, yes, this fire fire had spread to two neighboring apartments. Thankfully, no one was hurt in the blaze, but In March 2015, in Brooklyn, New York, there was a house fire that killed seven siblings, aged five to 16, and injured their mother and their surviving sister. Investigators concluded that the fire was caused by a malfunctioning electrical hot plate left on the kitchen counter that the family was using to keep food warm throughout the Sabbath day. The hot plate was left on intentionally because as observant Jews, the family was forbidden to manually adjust an electric switch on the Sabbath because that constituted work. Historically, the Sabbath was a delight, a highlight for the week when people could rest from their labor and worship God and turn their hearts and attention toward God. But over time, It had evolved into something rigid and repressive like we just heard. How in the world did that happen? This repressive and strict interpretation of what one can do and can't do on the Sabbath can be traced back to the Pharisees, the religious leaders in the days of Jesus. Jesus had to confront them over this very matter. The term Pharisees which probably means separated one, was a sect, a religious and political party of laymen and scribes who made their living as scholars. 
They were well respected by the common people in contrast to the more upper class Sadducees who were mostly high priests. They existed long before Jesus came onto the scene. Their motives were generally honorable. They wanted to do the right thing by God. As meticulous expositors of the scripture, they worked tirelessly to apply the teaching of the scripture to everyday life. Over time, they came up with many extra rules and traditions preserved in a document called the Mishnah, which was held in the same standing as God's word. So when they have their showdown with Jesus, as we will see shortly, the Pharisees had by then established 39 different rigid categories of what work was and wasn't. Remember, these are their laws and traditions and not God's word, okay? So let us read from Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on, on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did and what he and his companions, when he and his companions were hungry? He, David, entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat and also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Verse six, on another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, all of you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life, or destroy it. He looked around at them all and then said to the men, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. There are two Sabbath violations in the text. The first Sabbath, violation involves how Jesus' disciples got their lunch. Now, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 to 25, travelers, such as the disciples, were permitted to enter a farmer's crop and satisfy their hunger, provided they didn't take the food with them. So the Pharisees' objection was not to the fact that they did that, but that they did it on the Sabbath. According to the Mishnah, their rule book, the disciples were guilty of four specific Sabbath violations. They were reaping, they were threshing, they were winnowing, and they were preparing food. That's work. Jesus defended his disciples by directing the Pharisees' attention to the scriptures in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 3 to 6, by asking them, have you read this passage? 
Of course, Jesus knew the Pharisees had read it. So why did he ask them? It was an implied rebuke from Jesus to them. Jesus was making the point that while they were familiar with the text, they had completely missed the intent of God's law, something all of us have been or will be guilty of. It is the story of how King David and his men who were hungry ate the only bread available at the time. That was the bread of the presence. This was bread for exclusive use in the service of the temple, and only the priests could eat of it as part of God's provision for them for the daily sustenance. In other words, on the one hand, what King David and his men did was a clear violation of the law. But on the other hand, they were not condemned. In other words, God made an exception for King David and his men. That being the case, Jesus confronts them. Why are you then condemning my disciples if King David and his men were not condemned? Matthew telling of the same story has Jesus saying after that, if only you had known the meaning of I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. The innocent, of course, were his disciples. Jesus was saying to the, to the Pharisees, my disciples were hungry. And in response, they went to get lunch. On the Sabbath, yes, but they were hungry. And here you are getting your knickers in a knot because they did not comply with your traditions about Sabbath. Where is God's mercy? Where is God's compassion in your response? But Jesus is not finished with his reply. He goes on to say that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this is an extraordinary claim because Sabbath was a divine ordinance. No wonder they were hopping mad at Jesus because Jesus is essentially saying to the Pharisees, the Sabbath law originated with me. And therefore, I have the right to regulate what takes place on the Sabbath. I'm taking the Sabbath back from you. It's meaning and its purpose. And Luke emphasizes this point by telling another story of another Sabbath violation, but this time it involves Jesus. One day while Jesus is teaching in a synagogue, he sees a man with a shriveled hand in the audience. Now such a condition would severely curtail this man's ability to work and earn an income. As always, the Pharisees are there to watch Jesus to discredit Jesus and his disciples. The word there means to spy on, to watch out of the corner of one's eye. According to the Pharisees and their Sabbath traditions, a doctor was allowed to attend to the sick if there was a danger to his life. But if no such danger exists, then healing was prohibited on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were hoping, like mad, that Jesus would heal the guy, and they knew that Jesus would not be able to help himself. So they were banking on Jesus to do this so that they could accuse him and find fault with him based on their standard of righteousness. Jesus knew their thoughts, 
And before doing anything, he tells the man to stand up in front of the crowd and ask him a question and ask everyone a question, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it. The question clearly implies the act of healing the man amounts to doing good and the failure to do so amounts to doing evil. There is no middle ground. You can sense the tension in the air. Will God heal and vindicate Jesus? After waiting and getting no reply, Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. He did, and he was completely healed. Now, normal, healthy, functioning people in the circumstance would be in awe, right? Erupt in joy and wonder at the miracle, right? If you were there, you'd go, woo, amazing. Not the Pharisees. They were furious. They were frowning. They didn't care that the man has just experienced a life-changing miracle. All they cared about was the fact that Jesus broke one of their Sabbath rules. They completely missed the forest for the trees. Remember, the Pharisees were a group of men who wanted to do the right thing by God. The Pharisees were men of the word. They would commit to memory all 39 books of the Old Testament. Despite their extensive knowledge of the Bible, they completely misrepresented God's character to the man. How could they have been so callous, so lacking in mercy toward a man with a shriveled hand? Jesus confronts them in Matthew's account of the same event. Matthew writes, and he answered, Jesus answered, if you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you, pull, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would, and you have. And their perverted worldview, it was okay to help animals. It was okay to save animals. It was okay to be merciful to animals, but it was not okay for Jesus to be merciful to a human being on the Sabbath. What a distortion of God's character. Not only that, what a distortion of the value of human life. The question of how we are to practice the Sabbath rest is not one we will explore this morning, but I have included with a news bulletin an article on the subject to help us think deeper about the issue. It was sent to you as a PDF copy. If you haven't read it, let me encourage you to do so. But what I would like us to consider as we apply the sermon is this one uncomfortable truth, and that is each one of us may be more like a Pharisee and less like Jesus in our attitudes and actions than we like to think. That we're more like the Pharisees and less like Jesus with our attitudes and actions than we care to admit. I'm almost certain that most of us had a negative reaction to the two stories that I started out with in the sermon. What were they thinking? What was the, what was the mother thinking? What was the father thinking? Couldn't they see the absurdity of their action? Right? 
But you know what? Us Christians, sadly, we're not all that different. We're not all that different. Christians have done a similar thing as the Pharisees without any rules in our traditions. We've got rules about the consumption of alcohol, rules about whether going to the movies is, is the right thing, maybe not now, but 20, 30, 40 years ago was a huge thing. Dancing, ooh, Christians, you couldn't dance. And God's favorite musical instrument, which was what? The organ, of course. God loves organ more than any other instrument. And if you played any other instrument, ooh, you are playing the devil's instrument. Rules and traditions about how long and often we should pray, how long and often we should read the Bible, going to church, the music that we listen to, and what is the suitable attire for church, God's holy day. Consider this list of some weird church bylaws. Here's some church, weird church bylaws, okay? No one can bring a colored drink to church, especially Kool-Aid. It's a bylaw. It's a rule. An active member is defined as one who gives at least one penny. That is one U.S. cent a year. Men serving communion are required to wear a coat and a tie. The church has to have a minimum of five deacons, even though this church has only 20 members. No church member can drink alcohol except during the Lord's Supper. That explains why in this particular church, uh, church attendance is pretty high during communion services. Members cannot have assigned pews. It is absolutely shameful that Christians can fight and leave over the smallest and most insignificant of things. Consider this, in one church, there was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. There is no hope for someone like me who can't even grow a miserly whatever. There was a fight over which picture of Jesus to put on in the foyer. There was a petition to have all church staff clean shaven. I don't know whether that included female staff. There was a dispute over the type of coffee served at morning tea, an argument whether the church should allow people to wear black t-shirts since black is the color of the devil. <laughs> I thought the devil wore red. Yeah, you prefer red. Finally, in one church, and this is for you, Sue McPherson, there was a fight over whether to have gluten-free communion bread or not. Ridiculous, silly, stupid, unimportant diversions from the more important things in God's heart, such as our mission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching people to follow Jesus and his commands. How did the church become such an institution? We're not all that different from the Pharisees. So to help us, I'd like to suggest three traits that we're to be alert to in spotting a modern Pharisee, a modern day Pharisee in us. Do not think that this message is for someone else. How do we spot a modern day Pharisee in us? The first trait is the modern day Pharisee is self-righteous and arrogant. The modern day Pharisee is self-righteous and arrogant. 
Their confidence in standing before God's presence is not founded in what Jesus has done for them. They say it's Jesus, but in their lifestyle, in their thought, in their actions, in their attitudes, their confidence is found, found their, their confidence in standing before God is founded on what they have done and what they can do for Jesus. And that attitude is an affront to God. Listen to how a Pharisee prays in Luke 18, 11. I thank you, God, that I'm not like the other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. And we can expand the prayer to read something like, God, I'm so thankful I'm not a charismatic. I'm so thankful that I'm not part of Hillsong. I'm so thankful I'm a Baptist, born, bred, and tried, and I'll be a Baptist for life. I'm so thankful that I am an Australian, a white Australian. I'm so thankful that I'm an Asian. Asians can be equally racist as Caucasians, I would have you know. And you include more things to that list. How do you pray? And maybe you don't pray like that, but you have that attitude anyways. There's certain people you look down on. There's certain people who have certain professions that you look down on. They're just not as good as you. They're just not as moral as you. Pharisees are very self-assured of their self-righteousness for the very simple reason. I mean, how can they be so assured of their self-righteousness? and they're standing before God. The reason is they pick and choose what's important to obey. They obey God on their terms. That's how they can be so confident about their righteousness before God, you see. They pick and choose what they think is important. They add to and subtract from God's word when it suits them. See, on the one hand, they can be obsessive with teachings from God's word that are important, but they're not absolutes. On the other hand, they can completely ignore and be lax about the part of God's word that are absolutes. Another way of putting it is they have one rule for themselves and another for others. I hardly watch The Simpsons, but there is a character by the name of Helen Lovejoy. Lovejoy. Helen Lovejoy, who is the wife of Reverend Tim Lovejoy. Helen is a very moralistic individual, but she's also very judgmental and gossipy at the same time. That's okay. That's okay. Compared to Michelangelo's David, she protests. It's filth. It graphically portrays parts of the human body which, practical as they may be, are evil. And this double standard is summed up best by what one individual said to Philip Yancey, author of What's So Amazing About Grey's and other great books. Why do Christians get very angry toward other Christians who sin differently than they do? Why do Christians get very angry toward other Christians who sin differently than they do? And this leads to the second trait, which is a nuance of the first elevating your personal convictions, your church traditions as divine or absolutes. 
It's quite okay. It's perfectly okay, in fact, to have personal convictions on a whole range of matters, including uh, teachings of the Bible. Family and church traditions can be helpful and enriching to our faith, but when we give family traditions, church traditions, our personal convictions, divine status, that is, this is what the Bible teaches absolutely, and if you don't embrace them, you're sinning and devaluing God's word, we're guilty of being Pharisee-like. Jesus rebuked them on this very point in Matthew 15, verse 9. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men or the traditions of men. In other words, they make up their own laws in order to avoid actually obeying God or to cover up or compensate areas where they're not walking right with God. An extreme example of what that looks like may be that they become fixated on whether Adam and Eve have navels. That the answer to this very question is paramount to the Christian faith. And I've got a song about that in my Good Friday message. So if you want to listen to the rest of that song, you'll have to come on Good Friday. It's a wonderful, hilarious song about Adam and Eve having navels. The third trait of a Monday Pharisee in us is one of callousness and harshness of spirit. This is how, the, how Jesus describes the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. The way they present truths it is often done in a, in a harsh and callous spirit. The Pharisees were committed to their brand of truth at any cost. If they have to burn people, they would. If they have to destroy relationships, they would. Relationships always came second. In Luke chapter 9, in a certain town, when Samaritans, whom Jews considered inferior to, and beneath them, refused Jesus, James and John, brothers, went to Jesus and said, Lord, do you want us to call fire from heaven? Do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? And how is this attitude different from Christians who recently demonstrated against the Sydney Mardi Gras shouting out to gay right activists, go to hell, you're all going to hell. How is that different from the attitude of James and John? Are we then to tolerate sin? Are we then to tolerate unrighteousness and questionable doctrines? No, not at all. As Keller brilliantly puts it, tolerance isn't about not having beliefs. It is about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. Tolerance isn't about not having beliefs. But it is about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. Folks, it is possible to hate sin and not be harsh and callous at the same time. It is possible to be uncompromising with God's truth and not be like the Pharisee, lacking grace and humility. 
It is possible to disagree gracefully and respectfully with another Christian over an aspect of Christian doctrine or teaching. So let me conclude with a final segment. So how then can we be more like Jesus and less like a Pharisee with our attitudes and actions? Well, by obviously turning to Jesus and cultivating, not just turning Jesus, but cultivating a deeper friendship with him. Our obedience to him must come from a place of awe, love, and gratitude to Jesus for his grace and mercy. If it doesn't, then we are Pharisees in the making. If our motive for obeying God, if our motive for teaching anything that we strongly feel passionately about, no matter how good and how orderly and how justifiable it is, if it does not come from a place of humility, if it does not come from, a, from our friendship with Jesus, full with love and gratitude to Jesus for his grace and mercy, then can I suggest to you that we are Pharisees in the making. As many biblical scholars have noted, New Testament theology is Christocentric. It means every aspect of New Testament theology is closely connected to the person and the work of Christ. In Jesus, we see someone who hated sin, but he walked in love. He walked in grace. He walked in compassion. He walked in mercy all at the same time. Jesus absolutely hated sin, but isn't it interesting that he embraced sinners? He didn't justify sinners. He didn't say okay to sinners and what they did, but he embraced them. He was relaxed with them. And sinners alike were generally very much at ease with him. So much so, the Pharisees sarcastically called Jesus the friend of sinners. Tim Keller makes this acute observation in his book, The Particle God. Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. That is very interesting. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, button-down, moralistic people the licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did or in the manner that he did. So for your application, in addition to the article that I referred to earlier, which was sent to you in a PDF form, as you walked in, you would have received another article. Read that article. It's by Carl Kerry Newhoff, the temp, top 10 things Pharisees say today. There are extra copies out there. If you haven't got one, make sure you read one. And those of you who are not here, joining us online, a digital copy will be sent to you on Tuesday. Just wanted us to hear the message first before handing, those, handing that particular article out. And as you read it, like I said, don't think of somebody else, think of yourself. Is there a Pharisee in me? Ask Jesus through the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. Whether you have any Pharisee traits, repent and ask for his forgiveness. Ask Jesus to transform you. Seek counsel, seek prayer. Be rest assured that there is a Pharisee that lives in all of us. 
And of course, the second application is to read the article that I referred to earlier. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you. And the first thing we want to declare is we are more like the Pharisees and less like you than we like to admit. And it grieves your heart that we're not more like you. It grieves your heart that when the world looks at us, they see the older brother types in us. They see the Pharisees in us. And we collectively want to say sorry to you, Lord Jesus, that we're not more Christ-like and more Pharisee-like. But there is hope. We have the Holy Spirit in us. With you, there is forgiveness. With you, there is grace. And so, with that in mind, we turn to you and we ask that you will expose Pharisee traits in us that we're not even aware of, that we pass off as godliness. When it's not godliness, it's just our self-arrogant righteousness. Convict us, Lord. Show us where we have erred. Show us where we've become Pharisees-like. And Holy Spirit, grant us the grace and the power to be more like Jesus. Grant us grace to also maybe even go further and apologize to people in our lives where we have been more like Pharisees and less like Jesus and say sorry to them. I ask for this grace, I ask for this transformation, and I ask for this revelation in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.